section ten of england scotland ireland and wales this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox the world's story volume ten england scotland ireland and wales edited by eva march tappan section ten the trial and execution of king charles the first sixteen forty nine by jacob abbott and now a design to which at the commencement of the civil war no man would have dared to allude and which was no less inconsistent with the solemn league and covenant than with the old law of england began to take a distinct form the austere warriors who ruled the nation had during some months meditated a fearful vengeance on the captive king when and how the scheme originated whether it spread from the general to the ranks or from the ranks to the general whether it is to be ascribed to policy using fanaticism as a tool or to fanaticism bearing down policy with headlong impulse are questions which even at this day cannot be answered with perfect confidence it seems however on the whole probable that he who seemed to lead was really forced to follow and that he sacrificed his own judgment and his own inclinations to the wishes of the army for the power which he had called into existence was a power which even he could not always control and that he might ordinarily command it was necessary that he should sometimes obey cromwell had to determine whether he would put to hazard the attachment of his party the attachment of his army his own greatness nay his own life in an attempt which would probably have been vain to save a prince whom no engagement could bind with many struggles and misgivings and probably not without many prayers the decision was made charles was left to his fate the military saints resolved that in defiance of the old laws of the realm and of the almost universal sentiment of the nation the king should expiate his crimes with his blood thomas babington macaulay everything connected with the trial was conducted with great state and parade the number of commissioners constituting the court was one hundred and thirty-three though only a little more than half that number attended the trial the king had been removed from hurst castle to windsor castle and he was now brought into the city and lodged in a house near to westminster hall so as to be at hand on the appointed day the court assembled the vast hall and all the avenues to it were thronged the whole civilized world looked on in fact in astonishment at the almost unprecedented spectacle of a king tried for his life by an assembly of his subjects the first business after the opening of the court was to call the roll of the commissioners that each one might answer to his name the name of the general of the army fairfax who was one of that number was the second upon the list when his name was called there was no answer it was called again a voice from one of the galleries replied he has too much wit to be here this produced some disorder and the officers called out to know who answered in that manner but there was no reply 
afterwards when the impeachment was read the phrase occurred of all the people of england when the same voice rejoined no not the half of them the officers then ordered a soldier to fire into the seat from which these interruptions came this command was not obeyed but they found on investigating the case that the person who had answered thus was fairfax's wife and they immediately removed her from the hall when the court was fully organized they commanded the sergeant-at-arms to bring in the prisoner the king was accordingly brought in and conducted to a chair covered with crimson velvet which had been placed for him at the bar the judges remained in their seats with their heads covered while he entered and the king took his seat keeping his head covered too he took a calm and deliberate survey of the scene looking around upon the judges and upon the armed guards by which he was environed with a stern and unchanging countenance at length silence was proclaimed and the president rose to introduce the proceedings he addressed the king he said that the commons of england deeply sensible of the calamities which had been brought upon england by the civil war and of the innocent blood which had been shed and convinced that he the king had been the guilty cause of it were now determined to make inquisition for this blood and to bring him to trial and judgment that they had for this purpose organized this court and that he should now hear the charge brought against him which they would proceed to try an officer then arose to read the charge the king made a gesture for him to be silent he however persisted in his reading although the king once or twice attempted to interrupt him the president too ordered him to proceed the charge recited the evils and calamities which had resulted from the war and concluded by saying that the said charles stuart is and has been the occasioner author and continuer of the said unnatural cruel and bloody wars and is therein guilty of all the treasons murders rapines burnings spoils desolations damages and mischiefs to this nation acted and committed in the said wars or occasioned thereby the president then sharply rebuked the king for his interruptions to the proceedings and asked him what answer he had to make to the impeachment the king replied by demanding by what authority they pretended to call him to account for his conduct he told them that he was their king and they his subjects that they were not even the parliament and that they had no authority from any true parliament to sit as a court to try him that he would not betray his own dignity and rights by making any answer at all to any charges they might bring against him for that would be an acknowledgment of their authority but he was convinced that there was not one of them who did not in his heart believe that he was wholly innocent of the charges which they had brought against him these proceedings occupied the first day the king was then sent back to his place of confinement and the court adjourned the next day when called upon to plead to the impeachment the king only insisted the more strenuously in denying the authority of the court and in stating his reasons for so denying it the court was determined not to hear what he had to say on this point and the president continually interrupted him while he in his turn continually interrupted the president too it was a struggle and a dispute not a trial at last on the fourth day something like testimony was produced to prove that the king had been 
in arms against the forces of the parliament on the fifth and sixth days the judges sat in private to come to their decision and on the following day which was saturday january twenty seventh they called the king again before them and opened the doors to admit the great assembly of spectators that the decision might be announced there followed another scene of mutual interruptions and disorder the king insisted on longer delay he had not said what he wished to say in his defence the president told him it was now too late that he had consumed the time allotted to him in making objections to the jurisdiction of the court and now it was too late for his defence the clerk then read the sentence which ended thus for all which treasons and crimes this court doth adjudge that he the said charles stuart is a tyrant traitor murderer and public enemy and shall be put to death by the severing of his head from his body when the clerk had finished the reading the president rose and said deliberately and solemnly the sentence now read and published is the act sentence judgment and resolution of the whole court and the whole court rose to express their assent the king then said to the president will you hear me a word sir president sir you are not to be heard after the sentence king am i not sir president no sir guards withdraw the prisoner king i may speak after sentence by your favour sir hold i say sir by your favour sir if i am not permitted to speak the other parts of his broken attempts to speak were lost in the tumult and noise he was taken out of the hall one would have supposed that all who witnessed these dreadful proceedings and who now saw one who had been so lately the sovereign of a mighty empire standing friendless and alone on the brink of destruction would have relented at last and would have found their hearts yielding to emotions of pity but it seems not to have been so the animosities engendered by political strife are merciless and the crowd through which the king had to pass as he went from the hall scoffed and derided him they blew the smoke of their tobacco in his face and threw their pipes at him some proceeded to worse indignities than these but the king bore all with quietness and resignation the king was sentenced on saturday on the evening of that day he sent a request that the bishop of london might be allowed to assist at his devotions and that his children might be permitted to see him before he was to die there were two of his children then in england his youngest son and a daughter the other two sons had escaped to the continent the government granted both these requests by asking for the service as of an episcopal clergyman charles signified his firm determination to adhere to the very last hour of his life to the religious principles which he had been struggling for so long it is somewhat surprising that the government were willing to comply with the request it was however complied with and charles was taken from the palace of whitehall which is in westminster to the palace of st james not very far distant he was escorted by a guard through the streets at st james's there was a small chapel where the king attended divine service the bishop of london preached a sermon on the future judgment in which he administered comfort to the mind of the unhappy prisoner so far as the sad case allowed of any comfort 
by the thought that all human judgments would be reviewed and all wrongs made right at the great day after the service the king spent the remainder of the day in retirement and private devotion during the afternoon of the day several of his most trusty friends among the nobility called to see him but he declined to grant them admission he said that his time was short and precious and that he wished to improve it to the utmost in preparation for the great change which awaited him he hoped therefore that his friends would not be displeased if he declined seeing any persons besides his children it would do no good for them to be admitted all that they could do for him now was to pray for him the next day the children were brought to him in the room where he was confined the daughter who was called the lady elizabeth was the oldest he directed her to tell her brother james who was the second son and now absent with charles on the continent that he must now from the time of his father's death no longer look upon charles as merely his older brother but as his sovereign and obey him as such and he requested her to charge them both from him to love each other and to forgive their father's enemies you will not forget this my dear child will you added the king the lady elizabeth was still very young no said she i will never forget it as long as i live he then charged her with a message to her mother the queen who was also on the continent tell her said he that i have loved her faithfully all my life and that my tender regard for her will not cease till i cease to breathe poor elizabeth was sadly grieved at this parting interview the king tried to comfort her you must not be so afflicted for me he said it will be a very glorious death that i shall die i die for the laws and liberties of this land and for maintaining the protestant religion i have forgiven all my enemies and i hope that god will forgive them the little son was by title the duke of gloucester he took him on his knees and said in substance my dear boy they are going to cut off your father's head the child looked up into his father's face very earnestly not comprehending so strange an assertion they are going to cut off my head repeated the king and perhaps they will want to make you a king but you must not be king as long as your brothers charles and james live for if you do very likely they will some time or other cut off your head the child said with a very determined air that then they should never make him king as long as he lived the king then gave his children some other parting messages for several of his nearest relatives and friends and they were taken away in cases of capital punishment in england and america there must be after the sentence is pronounced written authority to the sheriff or other proper officer to proceed to the execution of it this is called the warrant and is usually to be signed by the chief magistrate of the state in england the sovereign always signs the warrant of execution but in the case of the execution of the sovereign himself which was a case entirely unprecedented the authorities were at first a little at a loss to know what to do the commissioners who had judged the king concluded finally to sign it themselves it was expressed substantially as follows at the high court of justice for the trying and judging of charles stuart king of england january twenty ninth sixteen forty eight whereas charles stuart king of england has been convicted attainted and condemned of high treason and sentence was pronounced against him by this 
court to be put to death by the severance of his head from his body of which sentence execution yet remaineth to be done these are therefore now to will and require you to see the said sentence executed in the open street before whitehall upon the morrow being the thirtieth day of this instant month of january between the hours of ten in the morning and five in the afternoon of the said day with full effect and for so doing this shall be your sufficient warrant fifty-nine of the judges signed this warrant and then it was sent to the persons appointed to carry the sentence into execution that night the king slept pretty well for about four hours though during the evening before he could hear in his apartment the noise of the workmen building the platform or scaffold as it was commonly called on which the execution was to take place he awoke however long before day he called to an attendant who lay by his bedside and requested him to get up i will rise myself said he for i have a great work to do to-day he then requested that they would furnish him with the best dress and an extra supply of underclothing because it was a cold morning he particularly wished to be well guarded from the cold lest it should cause him to shiver and they would suppose that he was trembling from fear i have no fear said he death is not terrible to me i bless god that i am prepared the king had made arrangements for divine service in his room early in the morning to be conducted by the bishop of london the bishop came in at the time appointed and read the prayers he also read in the course of the service the twenty-ninth chapter of matthew which narrates the closing scenes of our saviour's life this was in fact the regular lesson for the day according to the episcopal ritual which assigns certain portions of scripture to every day of the year the king supposed that the bishop had purposely selected this passage and he thanked him for it as he said it seemed to him very appropriate to the occasion may it please your majesty said the bishop it is the proper lesson for the day the king was much affected at learning this fact as he considered it a special providence indicating that he was prepared to die and that he should be sustained in the final agony about ten o'clock colonel hacker who was the first one named in the warrant of execution of the three persons to whom the warrant was addressed knocked gently at the king's chamber door no answer was returned presently he knocked again the king asked his attendant to go to the door he went and asked colonel hacker why he knocked he replied that he wished to see the king let him come in said the king the officer entered but with great embarrassment and trepidation he felt that he had a most awful duty to perform he informed the king that it was time to proceed to whitehall though he could have some time there for rest very well said the king go on i will follow the king then took the bishop's arm and they went along together they found as they issued from the palace of st james into the park through which their way led to whitehall that lines of soldiers had been drawn up the king with the bishop on one side and the attendant before referred to whose name was herbert on the other both uncovered walked between these lines of guards the king walked on very fast so that the others scarcely kept pace with him when he arrived at whitehall he spent some further time in devotion with the bishop and then at noon he ate a little bread and drank some light wine soon after this colonel hacker the officer came to the door and let them know that the hour had arrived the bishop and hacker melted into tears as they bade their master farewell 
the king directed the door to be opened and requested the officer to go on saying that he would follow they went through a large hall called the banqueting hall to a window in front through which a passage had been made for the king to his scaffold which was built up in the street before the palace as the king passed out through the window he perceived that a vast throng of spectators had assembled in the streets to witness the spectacle he had expected this and had intended to address them but he found that this was impossible as the space all around the scaffold was occupied with troops of horses and bodies of soldiers so as to keep the populace at so great a distance that they could not hear his voice he however made his speech addressing it particularly to one or two persons who were near knowing that they would put the substance of it on record and thus make it known to all mankind there was then some further conversation about the preparations for the final blow the adjustment of the dress the hair etc in which the king took an active part with great composure he then kneeled down and laid his head upon the block the executioner who wore a mask that he might not be known began to adjust the hair of the prisoner by putting it up under his cap when the king supposing that he was going to strike hastily told him to wait for the sign the executioner said that he would the king spent a few minutes in prayer and then stretched out his hands which was the sign which he had arranged to give the axe descended the dissevered head with the blood streaming from it was held up by the assistant executioner for the gratification of the vast crowd which was gazing on the scene he said as he raised it behold the head of a traitor the body was placed in a coffin covered with black velvet and taken back through the window into the room from which the monarch had walked out in life and health but a few moments before a day or two afterward it was taken to windsor castle upon a hearse drawn by six horses and covered with black velvet it was there interred in a vault in the chapel with an inscription upon lead over the coffin king charles sixteen forty eight end of section ten this recording is in the public domain